Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning again. My name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood. And uh, it's good to have you here, whether you're online, in person, watching now or watching later. Uh, however it is you're engaging with this, it's just good to have you a part of Rosewood. And, um, and today we're starting a new series together that will take us through the next few weeks called Rethink Religion. And to kind of understand where we're going with this, I think, or, or to kind of um, set a vision for where we're going with this, with this series, there's a phrase that I think best kind of captures the imagination of uh, of this message and of this series. Here's what this phrase is. You might have heard of it before. It's um, Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Or some variation of it. Um, you might have heard that before. Uh, first time I heard it was back in 2007. And I remember when it was because I was my freshman year of college. And uh, uh, I came to school um, not knowing how to do a lot of things. One of those things was, uh, was laundry. Um, I didn't know how to do laundry yet. Uh, Clothes just, it, as far as I knew, if clothes were on the floor, they came back clean. And they just hung themselves up. Um, and then the pile grew, and I knew I needed to do something with it. And so I didn't really know how to do laundry. None of the guys on my floor knew how to do laundry. And luckily, I met a, a girl there named Sarah, and she knew how to do laundry. And so she taught me how to do laundry, and I'm grateful to her. And so back in 2007, what do you do when you meet somebody new? You go to Facebook. And back in, in that time, you look at Facebook, and the first thing you see, even before you, even when you're trying to add them as a friend, is you see things like here's your, their interests and their gender, relationship status, and religion. And her religion was a write-in response. Um, I'm not in a religion. I'm in a relationship. That was the, the first time I, I ever encountered this, this, um, this idea of, of Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Now, the intent of the phrase is good. Uh, the intention is to describe the way that Christianity is different from all other religious viewpoints. That, that in, in Christianity, in Christianity alone, we believe in a personal relationship with a personal living God who is revealed in Christ and makes a way to salvation uh, by grace through faith, not by what we do. But this phrase also, um, th it, it also denotes a certain dissatisfaction uh, with Christianity or with uh, religion as a whole. Um, it, it kind of, it says like, you know, there's something wrong with this. There's something that has become kind of twisted over time to the point where, where some people would rather not even say I'm in a relationship. In fact, some are in a, in a religion. Some people wouldn't want to even say like nowadays, sometimes you don't even hear people say like, I'm a Christian. It's I'm a Christ follower. And it's kind of this way, you know, call it what you want, but just kind of a way of, of disassociating with, with something that you've come to, to believe isn't like a pure version of what you really believe. Um, so here's the thing, the intent is good, um, and the critique is often uh, merited and, and um, 
you know, comes often from, from experiences where if you heard them, you'd say, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you there. Um, here's the problem, though, with Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. The problem is, um, Christianity is a religion. So just to get kind of technical here, Christianity is a religion. We have uh, beliefs and practices, and because of that, it's a religion. So we are going to throw out the phrase, but we're not going to throw out the intention nor are we going to disregard the, matter, the modern dissatisfaction with religious hypocrisy and behavior, uh, which again is quite warranted. And while Jesus did not preach perfectionism uh, as something that is within our grasp on this side of heaven, I think we absolutely should rethink a religion that gets contorted to believe one of two things. To believe that, that what we do doesn't matter or that what we do is more important than knowing Jesus. That our actions mean nothing in light of grace. Or that, that somehow grace gets thrown out and we are who we are because of what we do. So as we get into this series, we're going to start uh, with James 1. I'm going to be reading from verses 22 to 27. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be pleased in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So every, every generation of Christians have worried about uh, and, and expressed some sort of concern about what it means for, uh, for a faith community and for the perception uh, from the outside looking in uh, around people who call themselves Christians but just kind of, of glide by. Um, there's a name for this person, for this type of person. Maybe you've heard it before. It's not necessarily a religious term, uh, but it, it's nominal, okay? Nominal means uh, existing in name only. So can a Christian exist in name only? Yeah, you can exist in, in name only. And because every generation of Christians has been in some way worried about uh, what happens to a faith community and, and happens to the perception of that faith community and their religion because of, of nominal Christians, um, I think it's actually maybe a little bit uh, encouraging to know that James in the, first, in the churches in the first and second century, they had this problem too. James brings it up. He addresses it in, in some of the opening paragraphs of, of his letter. And, and so if he's addressing it, it means that it's an issue. That's how you can always kind of read the epistles. If you want to know the challenges that the early church went through, just reverse engineer uh, the letters of the New Testament and you know the challenges they're facing. And so here you find James addressing this kind of nominalism that exists within the early church, meaning that that nominalism exists, that, that, that it was happening at the time and it was an issue. There were people who were happy to listen to God's word, but walked away without having it affect their heart and influence their actions. And the metaphor that James uses is a mirror. 
That just as, as people look in a mirror and, they, and they, they see who they are and then they forget a second later. So we hear the word of God through, through scripture, yes, but, but also through sermons and prayer and meditation and, and through the, communion, or the, the, the community of other believers who speak into our lives. And then they go and they forget what all of that actually means and how it might apply to them and who they are in light of those things. Uh, we hear those things, but we don't really listen like a stereotypical husband. We hear, but we sometimes don't listen, right? Because deep down, and and here's where we deviate from that comment, but deep down, here's what it is. If Christianity is a label, if that's all that matters, is just making sure that people know that's who you are, then obedience does not matter. Because you're in it, or a person who is a nominal Christian, who deep down, that's what what they're going for, obedience doesn't matter. Necessary minimums matter so long as you can keep up the facade of Christian. So you don't have to, you don't have to, to do. Hearing is good enough. Being seen in a church is good enough to keep up the facade. So Jesus, um, or, or rather John, he describes it in a different way in Revelation 3. I guess technically you could say Jesus because it was Jesus speaking to John. And while John is having this vision, he gives seven instructions to seven different churches uh, in Revelation. In Revelation 3, he addresses the church in Laodicea. Uh, and Jesus tells John to deliver these words to them. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither uh, hot nor cold, spit you out of my mouth. Now, if you combine these stories and, you, and, and these metaphors a bit between John and James, um, both passages are, again, they're, they're addressing the same uh, spiritual dysfunction of, of nominal Christianity, in name only Christianity. And in Revelation, Jesus, Jesus takes a step further. He says something that, that doesn't necessarily, you don't find in James. And it's always stood out to me as kind of an odd phrase. It's not always made a lot of sense to me. Where Jesus says, I wish you were either one or the other. Because isn't there, isn't there a part of you, if you're being honest, and, and when you say this out loud, it sounds like a horrible idea, but, but in our minds, isn't there a little part of you that sometimes thinks like, shouldn't God be happy with lukewarm rather than cold? Like, like, shouldn't he be happy if I'm mostly committed rather than fully committed? Like, if you're not going to get any of me as the alternative, wouldn't you kind of be grateful for at least, for at least some of me? Apparently not. And for Jesus, he says, look, you, you're, trying to, you're trying to be lukewarm. You're trying to sit on the fence. You're trying to have a, a, a foot in both worlds. You're trying to, to find yourself to be this, like, this, this dual resident, this dual citizen of the kingdom and the earth. And he's saying, look, you've got to get off the fence. Or else I'm, I'm going to kick you off of the fence here. And, and Jesus, uh, James goes on and, and says that, that while you're on the fence, or when you're this kind of nominal Christian, and you hear the word of God, and you don't put it into practice, that what you're really doing is that you're deceiving yourself. Now, I love how he said, you know, deceiving yourself. Um, but who are you not deceiving? Um, well, for one, God. We, we deceive ourselves that we are deceiving everyone around us, but the truth is, for one, that, that we can't deceive God. He knows our hearts, he knows our minds, he knows our intentions and our motives, and that doesn't kind of give you a shiver down your spine. I think you're nuts. That God 
God knows us. He knows our intentions. He knows the intent behind the words and the actions that we say, the motives and, and all of that. So we're not deceiving God. And also, oftentimes we're not deceiving other Christians. Other Christians who have heard the word and have obeyed and see the disconnect. So you deceive yourself that you're deceiving God, and you deceive yourself that you are deceiving other Christians. And so those who hear the word of God and put it into practice, they see nominalism for what it really is. And as James says, and this is his words, not mine, that the practice of that is just worthless religion. That's all it is. But you put these two verses together, and, and we get the reason why Jesus says that he wishes that nominal Christian, Christians would either commit and submit or own their faithful, faithlessness. Because here's the thing, while a nominal Christian um, may be deceiving themselves about deceiving God and deceiving other Christians, nominal Christians, I believe, are successful in deceiving non-Christians. Now, I do not say that to mean that non-Christians are dumb and they can't figure it out. Simply the point is that if you're not a Christian, you don't have any awareness of Scripture or God or anything like that, then chances are you don't know whether someone is being nominal, whether what they're doing is aligning with what they believe because you don't fully understand what they believe. Non-Christians learn who Jesus is from what they see in you. People learn about who Jesus is for the first time, often not from Scripture, but from other people, other Christians at work and school, other, church, other Christians in their life. And so when a, Christian, when a Christian who exists in name only doesn't obey the word that they hear, the non-Christian will take untrue and unfair cues about who Jesus is because the source of their knowledge isn't pure. Nominal Christians distort the vision that non-Christians have of what faith in Christ really is. I'll give you an example. I, I, um, you know, every school has their bully. Every grade has their, their bully, right? And, and um, when I was a senior, we, well, not to name names, but we had our bully. And, and if I were to give you one minute to write down all the stereotypes of someone who was a bully and a jock at the same time, you'd perfectly describe him. He's like a walking stereotype. And, uh, and, and so, you know, so who was he? He was a guy who he picked on people who were weaker than him. He objectified girls. He had horrible language. Um, he was arrogant. He was prideful. And one Wednesday, he was sporting a new look. He had a gray cross on his, on his forehead. I remember that because I didn't know what that was. Well, it was Ash Wednesday, it turns out. And I found that out because one of my friends, who was one of his friends, asked him what that cross was about on his forehead. And I was, happened to be in earshot. And I remember exactly what the, what the bully, how the bully responded to my friend. He said, I'm Catholic, go forth and multiply. Ah, it took a little bit, took a little bit. Go forth, multiply yourself. And, um... It's just like, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. Because you look back and like, I mean, you tell me, and, and we, that's a bit of an extreme example, but you get it. Like, like what does the contrast between what's said, it, it, how does it contrast with what's projected? Here's the thing. Your, your actions have the capability to tell more people about your identity than your words. People will more often see you 
than hear you. What, you, uh, what do your actions communicate about Jesus if you are in it only for the label? And if God's call to us is to seek and save the lost, which it is, Luke 19.10, then how much harder are we making it for non-Christians to understand who Jesus is if our faith is not backed up by our obedience? In fact, to take this a step further, and I want to talk to just the, I want to talk to the parents out there now. Think about this. How, how much more confusing does faith become for the next generation when they hear Christian, but they don't see Jesus' commands respected and lived out by people who claim them? You see, parents, you have to understand that you are your child's first and longest serving teacher. That your children or your child or the children that you will have or for, maybe for grandparents here also for you, that your grandchildren and your children are understanding the world and understanding faith through their teacher, which is you. And their teachers will come and go. They're, they're school teachers, they're Sunday school teachers, they will come and go, but you will remain. You are their first and longest serving teacher. Look, they will have other teachers in their life. Like here, if you have a child here who is a part of children's ministries, you have many other teachers who are partnered with you as parents, who love your kids, who, who wish to, to see them come to know the Lord. It is wonderful when, when, when professions of faith occur and you as a teacher get to look out and see a child that you were a, a part of, that you had influence on their life. But here's the thing, no matter how great those teachers are, and they're great, they will never have more influence than you as parents. Because you have so much more time with them. You are so important to your children. You are so important to their faith growth. And so these kids, your kids, they are understanding who Jesus is and what faith means based on how you prioritize your time, based upon what you do, based upon how you give and what you give to, they're understanding Jesus through the way that you talk to people and the way that you talk about people. You are their first and longest serving uh, uh, teacher, which means that nominal faith projected to a child just continues to reproduce nominalism as well. I think this is why Jesus doesn't accept lukewarm faith and forgetful identities, because nominalism compromises Jesus's commission for the church. It also compromises Jesus's commissioning for the home. Nominalism is deceptive. That's James's word, it's deceptive. And you know what? Deception, that's, that's a part of the devil's job description. So if, if, you're, if you're deceiving yourself, the devil gets to take a day off. He doesn't have to worry about you. He doesn't have to worry about you. Because you are, you are so busy doing his work for him, he can just focus on something else or kick his feet up for a little bit. Anyway, I believe that all of this has to be said, and it's important that we go deeper in this as weeks to come, because it was on Jesus' heart, and it was on James's heart. They understood that the outcomes of how nominal Christianity can, can harm the witness of the church, can harm us as ambassadors of Christ, can harm a, a church internally, a church community, and can harm us in our homes. But I do not say any of this 
to try to give you ammunition to hurt other people with. Judge yourself for yourself first. That's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Because look, we are all broken and imperfect. We are, every one of us is susceptible to the markers of, of a nominal faith. We all will struggle with this, and not a single one of us is perfect. Sometimes people, sometimes your kids, and everybody who's around you enough will catch you in times of, of, of weakness, catch you in times of, of, of gossip, and when you're just tired and your emotions are at the surface, and you just, you say things, you do things that you wish you didn't, and people see that. It happens. It happens because you happen to be human. And that means that you are imperfect, but let's not pretend like all of this doesn't matter and that our actions don't matter. My intention is not to provide you with a new language to judge people. The easiest way to always shrug off a challenging message is to assume that I'm talking to the person next to you. It's always the easiest way. So as we wrap up the first message in this series, Rethink Religion, I think that we need to rethink, first off, the idea of hearing and doing. Many people are great at hearing. You hear a sermon. In fact, some of us, we hear many sermons. We, we go and we watch five more sermons or listen to five more sermons throughout the week. We hear God's word through his word and, and through prayer. We do all of these, these things to, to hear more of God's word, and that's great. But we should rethink religion not as a challenge to hear as much as possible, but to let our hearing sanctify us and to let our hearing sanctify our doing. Or as James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's easy to consume a lot of religious teaching and go around completely unchanged. That's the worthless religion that James is describing. The goal of our religion as religious people should not be just to hear, but to obey. And as we obey, we change. And as we change, we repent. Repentance should be part of our daily activity as Christians. Now, yes, when you make a faith commitment, you repent of your sins and, and Jesus forgives you for those. He separates you as far as the east is from the west. He wipes your slate clean. You are forgiven. You are a part of his family, a family that will never let you go, that will never abandon you. Absolutely. But part of the regular discipline as well for us is to continue to repent every day because as we hear we will obey, and as we obey, we will change. And part, an intrinsic part of changing is repenting. Change is often not a thing that churches are known for, and that's sad because if we, open, if we are open to the words of the Holy Spirit, we should be changing every day. No one who has surrendered to the Holy Spirit can remain the same. Only Jesus surrendered to the Holy Spirit and didn't change. He didn't have to, but we do. If you aren't different from who you are a year ago, and I'm being pretty gracious with this time frame, that's a strong indication of nominalism. If you think back a year from now, how many sermons you've listened to, how much Bible you've read, how many times you've prayed, if you can think back a year from now and say, I don't know, I, I, have you grown in the fruit of the Spirit? 
Are you a healthy tree growing those things? Now, now granted, sometimes we're just not sure because who were you a year ago? And that's why I would encourage you also, since it is the beginning of the year, the second Sunday of the year, consider archiving your faith right now where it is. Archive it. it literally write it down or, 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 or put it in a note on your phone or however you do it. But archive your faith. What are you struggling with right now? What are some of the ways that you want to see yourself grow? What are some of the sharp edges that, that you want God to kind of grind off of you? What about, what about questions that you have? And don't just make it, also, talk about the ways that you see God alive in your life. The ways that you've been praying and seeing him working. Archive your faith where you are right now, but don't like seal it up and put it away. Put reminders in your phone every two months, every month, whatever it is. Check it. See where it is. Keep yourself accountable so that you don't just look at the mirror and look away. Remember who you are. Remember who Christ is calling you to be. And my goodness, you will not be perfect. And God doesn't expect that out of you. We will never be perfect. And the Holy Spirit will continue to be the one who transforms us. But sometimes we have to look in that mirror that James describes and look ourselves in the eye and admit that I'm the problem. To look ourselves in the eye and admit that we are looking at the problem. And that in its own way is a beautiful first step of repentance. Of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit towards the man and the woman that God has called us to be. The spirit of our perfect Savior lives in you so that you don't have to do the work of transformation under your own strength. So get off the fence, pick a side, and live all in with your choice. Let's pray. God, thank you that you continue to speak with us, that you are not an absent God who spun the world and said, good luck. But God, you are with us through your spirit that this kind of presence was achieved through the sacrifice and resurrection of your son. And God, we are so grateful that we have a God who cares about us, who desires a relationship with us, who went through all of this, even if it meant just one person coming to him. God, your kindness, your goodness is beyond measure. And Jesus, as you are kind, as you are good, as you are gracious, as you are forgiving, as you are loving, so Jesus, help us to reflect these values back into the world. To reflect it to one another as a part of the church so that we can preach the gospel through our words and actions to one another so we can be constantly reminded of who we are in Christ. Help us to to project these things and and communicate these things through our actions and words to all of the people for whom we are in their social circle. Because God, you might be calling us to more than just existing. You might be calling us towards a person to be able to communicate through our words and actions what matters and why life with you is so beautiful and is so meaningful. So Jesus, thank you that you have come near, so near that you are here in this place, that we are a temple of your Holy Spirit as we gather together like this. And God, as we scatter from this place, I pray that you embolden us by the power of your Holy Spirit to change, to grow, to not just hear, but to obey your word. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.